Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan, Associate Professor of Medicine here at GW and Medical Director of the GW Center for Integrative Medicine. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're joined by Bevan Clare, MS, RH, CNS, uh, an herbalist, nutritionist, and professor and program manager of the Masters of Science in Clinical Herbalism at the Maryland University of Integrative Health. She holds an MS in infectious disease from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, serves as an adjunct assistant professor at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy, and is an adjunct associate professor at the New York Chiropractic College. Bevan is the president of the American Herbalist Guild, the largest body of professional clinical herbalists in the U.S. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Bevan. Thank you. We're really glad you you joined us, Bevan, Um, and we know you have a really busy schedule. So what is clinical herbalism? It's, it's always such an interesting question because I think there's a lot of ways to answer this. Um, you know, to step back, I think herbalism, and cl- which is often clinical by nature, uh, is probably one of the oldest careers, uh, particularly for women. But this has been a, 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 a vocation or career throughout all of our history that people would be healers, they'd use herbs, and so on. Um, that may not be what you're evoking in your mind when you're thinking clinical herbalism, but you know it, it is one of these fields that is uh, it has been adopted by every single culture in the world and uh, and is is central really to health and wellness um, up until you kind of get to the point of conventional modern um, medicine happening that we have now and then you know it got shifted a little bit to the side through a lot of the the things that have gone on in the world but you know clinical herbalism in a nutshell is people using plants, for medicine, but it's a lot more than just a a pharmaceutical substitution model. Um, I think a lot of people think, ah, it's like instead of using antidepressants, you can use St. John's Wort. It's it's much more of an overall uh, wellness model that takes, it it supports health and well-being. It's not something that you use necessarily to treat disease exclusively as much as to sustain and maintain health. So I think it's almost a little bit closer to nutrition than it is uh, to what people would think of as a therapeutic medicine. Um, In a practical sense, it's the use of herbal products in health and wellness and disease care. And we we often or typically are using these products in formulation or using them along with other herbs in teas, tinctures, salves, and then perhaps things like capsules and, um, and other more, you know, conventionally comfortable products for people. Great. Such a good answer. Um, Bevan, I'm sure that some of our listeners um, are going to wonder, um, you have this you know, fascinating combination of uh, masters in sciences and in infectious diseases and herbalists and nutritionists. How do you combine all this? I'm sure some, if we have an infectious disease doctor, for example, listening to podcasts, they're probably wondering, herbs for infections? Are you kidding me? So just, just curious, how, how does this all evolve? And I'm sure you have a really good 
thoughts as to, I actually highly disagree that I think herbs for, for infections can be very profound. We're just really not seeing that done in the clinical settings in a standard model, but really love to hear your point on this. Yeah, there's there's a number of ways I can answer this question. I'll try to do a couple of the most interesting takes on it. But for me, herbalism came first. Uh, this has been, in a way, you could say a lifelong interest or calling. I've always loved to go out in the woods and play with plants when I was a child, make, quote, medicines, um, not even knowing what they were. And uh and that created this, you know, long-term interest and love in this. And when I was a teenager, I started studying herbalism in a very kind of casual, folksy, you know, read books about it, had some teachers, you know, learned how to make some, some things and uh, just, you know, probably at that age thought I knew everything there was to know uh, because that's what it's like when you're 16 and you're studying something. And and so, you know, I, I spent this time with it. When I was in my very late teen years and my early adult years, I bought a one-way ticket to Southeast Asia. So, um, and this was in the 90s. And I decided that, uh, you know, that I was going to travel. I love to travel. It's still a, a huge passion of mine. And I was going to learn about herbalism. What I didn't expect was that in a lot of the regions where I was in the world, they didn't have a lot of travelers, uh, almost none, like Myanmar, remote Myanmar, remote Cambodia, um, eastern Indonesia. And when they would see a white woman walking around, they would assume that I was either a missionary or a doctor and that I had medication. So I had this fascinating and really um, ethically challenging situation of people bringing me their sick. And I mean, literally sometimes in their arms. And I was young and I had no idea. So for in the beginning, I was like, no, I am so sorry. But yeah, no. Uh, and, you know, it, it was difficult because there was no medical care. It wasn't like I could say, you know, you should go to the emergency room. There was no option. And... Uh, and so it was this difficult place to be in. But I think between being kind of a precocious youth and also having some trust in a lot of the uh, herbal medicines that we have and also feeling like I needed to do something, I started trying to use my limited knowledge with the plants that I recognized there, which you could buy at markets and so on, to try to help people. Um, you know, it's complicated because as a as a white person stepping into these cultures that have intact systems of herbal medicine, I never wanted to impose, um, a, you know, the impression of superiority of any type of medicine over their indigenous herbal medicine. But for some reason, that wasn't, you know, cutting it. And what happened over this time is that I got to witness what herbs were actually capable of in fairly urgent care, mostly infectious disease situations. And this continued with my own health, with that of other travelers that I would come across. Uh, you know, people were always getting sick and, uh, and, I, and we often didn't know what it was. And, you know, so it became very interesting watching what happens. And I think that that also is a good example of, of how herbs work with infectious disease in that they, you know, we don't actually even need to know necessarily what it is because of their broad immunosupportive activity and a lot of their um, ingenuity in how they 
work in the body. So, you know, there is absolutely no comparison to the pure strength of pharmaceutical antifungals or antibiotics with plants. Um, you know, that if you compare them using the uh, conventional criteria, um, pharmaceutical medicines are just a million times stronger, but at a cost, as we know, with antibiotics and so on. And so it's interesting, you know, the, the longest, the botanical medicine that we have known that people have used the longest is myrrh. And that's because we have a bit of a bill from Syria to Egypt or Egypt to Syria. I can't remember what it is. Um, some kind of invoice for the sale of myrrh as an herbal medicine that's about, I think, 8,000 years old or so. And what's fascinating about that is that myrrh is still used as an antimicrobial and there's still no resistance to it. So, you know, the mm. complexity of plants, it's not as strong, but it's really complex. And, uh, and how, that they, how they go about actually working with infection. So to answer, you know, your, your question, I came back from those travels. Um, I had a clinical practice in a conventional medical practice. I was their integrative practitioner. And, um, and to be honest, you know, I, I met my husband, who's an um, academic medical person, and he was like, you got to get a degree, you know? And I'm like, oh, I'm having so much fun. I'm learning all these things. And he's like, yeah, you, you need to go do this. And I'm thinking, well, then in what? Like what, what field can I get a degree in that would respect a lot of the things that I want to bring into it? And infectious disease, particularly the program that I went to, is a little bit of, of a public health model, and which means you're working in places where herbal medicines are a big part of things. And although they're not always used, things like artemisinin in malaria, um, you know, they are certainly on the... Um, there are on the radar of a lot of infectious disease people, particularly those who work in the world where not everyone has access to conventional care medicine. Well, so I have now so many follow-up questions, but let me just, let me just <laughs> don't want to put you on the spot, but let's start with the, Do it. <laughs> with one, this one. So can you give us one example? I give example of more, but can you give us uh, another example of um, herb that you would consider suggesting to a patient in some kind of an infectious process? Yeah. So this is, the, the, here's an example that I really, really love. Um, and it has, and I love it because it really embraces the, um, the spirit or the essence of herbal medicine being some, being about using whole plants. So if you take um, if you take a plant and what, what, what we like to do in science is like plants are messy. I mean, you know, from a perspective of research, it's like you've got this thing that has 400 active com constituents. They come in varying amounts depending on what time of the year it was harvested and by whom and what soil it came from. I mean, they're mm -hmm. totally inconsistent. So what, what, you know, humans like to do is we're like, ah, well. There must be one thing that's doing all the medicinal action in here. And this is where, how it's approached again and again, which, you know, I always say it's like, it's like asking which one thing in your pizza is good or which one thing in your <laughs> apple is healthy. I mean, it, it's like, it's a combo. It's a package deal. And, and, you know, and it's a, it's a co-evolutionary process with humans. Like this is not some random you know, thing that was thrown together. And so we find this let, one. Let me interrupt you yeah. for a second. Sorry, I'm getting so excited here. You know, I think, I think this is a critical point because until we, as a system, stop doing that to the integrative right. medicine, we're not going to get the most benefit. We're going to keep assuming that our standard scientific methods 
like, oh, let's isolate active ingredient in the play. I mean, sure, there's still value in there. I'm not right, discrediting that. But I'm also saying that it's critical to look at the complexity and stop trying to isolate anything because nature does not ever isolate anything. It includes everything. And I think we're, unfortunately, um, until we get that in our heads, it's going right. to be, um, you know, not optimal. Sorry, go back. I'm sorry. No, yeah, do I agree? Because you know, the thing is, we have to be able to be comfortable in a place of not really understanding how it's working. Because it, we don't have models. We don't have models that take a pl- that can take a plant with 400 constituents and the complexity of the human body and figure out what's actually happening. But a great example, you know, to address your question is that. So when you, when you look at an antimicrobial plant and you decide, all right, this is the thing, um, and let's take a plant like Berberus species, which is used, um, barberry, it's used all over the world, and it was used for kind of toxic heat in traditional systems, which is definitely an infection. And before we, you know, before there's germ theory and everything else, it's like if you have toxic heat in somebody's body, then you've got an infection. And so here, this plant is used in South America, in Asia, in, you know, North America by indigenous people because there's different species of Berberus. So when you look at this and the researchers said, oh, right, well, this is really clear. There's an antimicrobial substance, berberine, which is used conventionally, it is isolated, it's powerful, and it's really interesting. But they said, here's berberine. This works really well. Let's test it, you know, against antibiotics. And, um, and wow, it didn't work very well. I mean, it was okay, but it was like, hmm, clinically, it seems to work better. And part of it has to do with what they're leaving out. So some researchers looked a little harder at this and realized, um, that there's got to be something else going on. So they started looking at other compounds and found one called 5-methoxyhydnocarbon. And that compound um, is actually an efflux pump inhibitor. So, you know, for, for listeners who aren't familiar with the idea is that pretty much all cells have some kind of uh, ability to express an efflux pump to remove toxic substances from inside the cell and, you know, pump it right back out on the other side. And this is how, you know, drug resistance works a lot of the time, whether it's to chemotherapy or whether it's to antibiotics. Um, these efflux pumps are, you know, ubiquitous in nature and they're very efficient. Anything that's going to kill that cell, it just pumps it back out. So when they started looking at this berberus plant, they found, oh, wow, this particular um, substance actually paralyzes that pump. It's an efflux pump inhibitor. So in a way, it made that botanical so much more concentrated because while when you gave it to something in the antibiotic, when you gave, compared it to the antibiotic and the whole plant, that the antibiotic was kind of getting pumped back out of the cell if it could be, but the berberus was concentrating because it was also paralyzing that pump to, to prevent that efflux. So, so, you know, that's an example. And from a practical standpoint, when you're asking like, what can people actually use and how can they use it? I think that it's, often safe and often okay to be using antimicrobial plants alongside conventional antibiotics and so on. I mean, it's great to check the literature, to have your, to ask your physician or to contact an herbalist and find out. But a lot of the time we can use these whole plants because whole plants are also inherently safer or whole plant extracts um, in these care environments. And there's some really cool research that looks a little bit at this. What happens when you use an antibiotic alone and what happens when you add in a plant that can actually um, help it to be more effective? Great. 
So second follow-up question goes like this. So, you know, you mentioned it's that for certain herbs, there's been centuries of non-developing any kind of resistance. I mean, people have been using some of these products forever and ever and still use it and there's no resistance versus look at the antibiotics world. Some of them after a decade or two, and then you have to start looking for another choice. Why do you think that is? And I mean, I think I know the answer, but I want to hear it from you. And also, how do you see that being, is it possible that the future of infectious disease is some kind of a mix between always looking for new uh, antimicrobials, but also using herbs in some form of combination or as an adjunctive or something just to keep effectively treating the strains that became resistance to most known antibiotics. Of course, there are many of those. Right. Well, I think there's a few reasons why this is happening, but it, but I think the main reason that plants don't seem to develop that kind of um, resistance or th- that we don't see resistance to these plants, sorry, that, uh, that is because the plants, it, they're not coming out of a little, um, you know, sterilized package. Plants are living out in the world and they're living typically in soil. Uh, Soil is full of, you know, I think we only can even classify or identify 1% of soil bacteria at this point. I mean, there's, it's this hugely active microbial world. I mean, they are, plants are constantly, um, you know, living with and assaulted by and having to deal with the balance of all of these different organisms. And so their systems are really complex in how they deal with this. They, you know, they are constantly uh, adapting just like our, you know, the complexity of our own immune systems as humans blows my mind every time, you know, I learn more and more about it. Plants are similar. I mean, they also have pressure from infectious organisms. So we, in some ways we can actually adopt a little bit of that ingenious strategy um, that they have when we use them as medicine. So, you know, again, it's just, it's co-evolution and bio, you know, these pressures that for um, evolution, for biological development and, and evolutionary strategy. Great. Let's, let's, um, those of us, those of our listeners who want to get a little bit more practical, um, you know, you said that the, there's a healthy relationship with medicinal plants goes kind of beyond the tincture and capsules. But can you give uh, our listeners a little bit more practical ideas of how can they integrate herbs into their everyday life? I would love to. <laughs> you know, one of the things that makes me a little bit sad about herbalism is that I feel like it's inherently a, a sensory kind of beautiful, interesting medicine, and uh, it's a little akin to you know if you've traveled or you live outside of the United States or you're in parts of places where where food systems are much more alive and fragrant and vibrant. And I'm I'm always struck when I walk into the grocery store that it doesn't smell like food. You know, I'm thinking mm. here's this huge place, you know, full of of tens of thousands of food products, and it doesn't smell like anything. And yet, you go in other parts of the I world. I never places. thought of that, <laughs> right? And you go in other places in the world to food markets, and it's like it's like a sensory overload. I mean, between animals and herbs, and you know, things are rotting, and things are fresh, and things are vibrant, and um. So herbalism is a little bit the same thing, and I often feel like 
at one point in my life, I volunteered in a kind of natural products section of um, of a grocery store, so you know, akin to a Whole Foods sort of thing. And whenever people would would come and be like, "I'm looking for an herbal medicine," I always wanted to be like, "Actually, you're in the wrong section. You see all the the place <laughs> over there with all the brightly colored fruits and veggies. You should go over there and get medicine because." <laughs> um, so, you know, kidding aside, I do use tinctures and capsules and, and all of this. But in my day-to-day life, I actually don't. Um, if, I need, if I need medicine, like something is going on, I will um, I'll use those. But in my day-to-day life, it comes down to spices. It comes down to therapeutic use of spices. It comes down to, um, to just integrating a lot of botanicals into my life in, you know, in a, in a fun and, you know, desirable way. And we just, we know how good spices and all of these, these things are for us. I mean, spices are just endlessly healthy. Uh, and there, you know, there's also some other advantages that herbal medicine can be accessible, affordable. It can be multi-generational. Um, you do not need to buy incredibly expensive products a lot of the time, uh, to be able to do that. And that, you know, Herbal medicine to me, above all, is the people's medicine. And I think everyone should have access to be able to use herbal medicine like it is in many parts of the world. And it's fine if we want to have, you know, fancy niche products that are highly priced and, you know, make gummies and things like that. that that's <laughs> fine if, if we want to do that. But, um, you know, my, my students sometimes, actually this happened last week where they were saying, you know, this client could take gummies as an option. And I was like, great. So we've determined that they need to be taking a three gram dose of this plant a day, right? How much would it cost in gummies? And they, and they figured it out. They were like, it would cost $846 a month. And they'd have to eat like 34 gummies a day to get that dose. And I was like, okay, and how much would it cost if they were just adding it like to their food, three grams? And they were like, it would cost seven dollars and 65 cents you know <laughs> and, I, mm-hmm. and i mean that's that's the point sometimes is that you know we it's not better just because it's like fancier in a package or has a label on it um there are ways particularly in health prevention and, and wellness you know i think it's a critical point i think as a culture we have forgotten what food as medicine truly means you know right. we're going to the latest and greatest uh, pill for every ill kind of thing, forgetting that uh, this is kind of a relationship with the food chain is the, the most therapeutic. And, you know, like if anybody ever traveled to, like I went to Ikaria, which is a like little, little um, island of the Greece some years ago. And, and I've seen this firsthand, you know, like they don't go and garden stuff like right they they walk outside and in their natural setting 100 feet away from their house there's all kinds of plants growing they just know exactly what to pick for whatever they have and we don't have that in our culture and i'm so kind of happy that and that goes to the next question I'm so happy that that there are few people like you who are actually saying wait a second that's we haven't fully lost that art so with that, can you tell us about your book? Because I know that that's sort of, there's tons of practical information in the book that just came out last year in 2020. Um, just kind of overview it a little bit for us. Sure. So the book, Spice Apothecary, is about translating some of that information that people see about 
things being good for something into how they can actually use that without buying a, a capsule or a product. Uh, you know, one of my favorite examples is cinnamon. So there's lots of research on cinnamon. And um, a, as far as diabetes prevention or blood sugar stabilization, tons of research on cinnamon. It's also very well liked. As far as plant flavors go, cinnamon is something that a lot of people are like, delicious. Um, and yet, and also I will say that the dose of cinnamon is shown to be pretty small. It's a gram a day, which for herbs is pretty small. That is the kind of ideal therapeutic dose. In fact, if you do a lot more than that, sometimes it doesn't have as, as powerful of a medicinal effect or as it's not as efficacious. And so we have all this research to back it up. People see this and, you know, primary care providers even are like, oh, wow, cinnamon could be good. And then it's like, but where do we go from here? Well, I guess you should buy a cinnamon product and you should take a capsule, you know, two capsules every day, which is approximately a gram, which is silly because cinnamon is absolutely delicious and easy to take. And a gram a day is just like kind of a heavy sprinkle on your oatmeal or your applesauce or your smoothie or in whatever you want to put it in. Um, so, so the concept in the book is not just about that, but it's also about how to cook with a lot more spices and herbs or prepare foods with a lot more spices and herbs that you can do use every day. For example, the idea of you of create, taking hummus, even just packaged hummus, and adding a lot of different herbs and spices that are that are specifically targeted in a therapeutic direction. So whether somebody has concerns around um, healthy heart or um, immune health or something like that, it's you know it's evidence based and it's also informed by tradition and and so it kind of walks people through, you know, if you, if you think you should be taking these herbs, here's how to get a big enough dose. Like here's how to actually get a therapeutic size dose, but in your food. Uh, and I'm especially interested in this from the accessibility angle, because I am. Um, you know, again, I, I think that, you know, we're, this is, in this day and age, we hear so much about the social determinants of health. We hear about institutional racism in our medical system. We hear about all of these different things and herbs and spices are so good at fighting a lot of those kind of, um, those those destiny diseases that so many people are predisposed to because of, you know, food deserts and poverty and all of these other reasons. Uh, you know, I just, if, if I was in charge of the world, which I don't want to be, cause it would be terrible. <laughs> but, um, but one of the things I would do is just, you know, all these folks who have, it's really hard for them to find quality food and to have the, the resources to prepare it and to eat it. Um, and multi-generations of folks who we can look at and say, like, it is very likely there's going to be heart disease and diabetes and arthritis and cancer coming up in this uh, for this family. You start from day one with, like, here's herbs you can add to whatever you're eating. Even you can microwave something and you can add a whole bunch of herbs and spices if that's what it comes down with, to. With the wonderful side benefit of it tasting better. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, you can take something, you can take some some canned black beans, some frozen corn, um, half a container of salsa, Yes. Throw in some some spices, chop up some cilantro or some oregano or some um, or some uh, flat leaf parsley and toss that in there. And suddenly something that um, could have tasted very mass produced tastes fresh. Yes. Yes. And, and you it's know, healthier for you. 
Exactly. And there's a million and one ways this can happen. And I, and I have to say, I was inspired a long time ago uh, when I was first practicing by, there's a, a woman that I was working with and she was from, um, I think, Poland and her husband, they're very Polish. And uh, they came in and it was for him that they came in and I gave them an herbal formula. And, uh, and, and when they came back in, I asked, you know, I asked him, how, how's it going? You know, and he said, I, I'm fine. I'm feeling better. And I said, oh, you know, have you enjoyed taking the tea? And he said, I've never taken a tea. And I was like, hmm, okay. So I, you know, I said, what about the, you know, the herbs that I recommended? Did that, how did that go? And, and he's like, I haven't taken any herbs. And his wife was, was blushing. And, and I'm thinking, you know, how do you sneak a tea into somebody? I mean, that's, that's <laughs> right. And uh, so, so she just, you know, I said, how is, how is this happening? What's happening? And, you know, she kind of, I was like, you know, just tell me it's okay. And it turns out every week she would make sausages for their family, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that was a part of their life that what they did for their diet. And every day he had sausages. So she just, added the herbs into the sausages and, and, you know, and he ate them. And, you know, what to me, I was like, wow, heat and fat are really good for absorption of these um, phytochemicals. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's ideal. And I just thought, <laughs> right. I mean, why I can not? See, I can see Dr. Frame, like, hearing this sausage every day, having a heart attack. <laughs> but okay. Hey, you know, well, that's, a, that's, that's the cultural sensitivity, right? I mean, that's, that's yeah. how cultures use this right basically you know thousand year old history of of the plant-based medicines and hey however you can get it in right, right. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah well so for our listeners the the, the um uh, Bear and claire's book called spice apothecary uh, blending and using common spices for every day health and it's it is on amazon and kindle hardcover and paperback uh, and you know, it did came out in in the in sort of like first six months of pandemic. Yeah, um, I cannot. I'm not going to ask you anything about that. So it's just, I can only imagine what you had to go through. But um, you know, when when uh, this mess subsides, hopefully soon, um, we should have you back for some uh, book signing event. I'd um, love it. The book, the cover looks so pretty with all the spices. I know. Um, it's awesome. Yeah, and I can even bring down some tasty nibbles or something. But yeah, the whole book tour was basically like, oh, because it was right, it was right then. It was in in um, yeah. May of 2020, so it was right mm. when we were like, hmm, I guess it's just going to be a couple more weeks of this, and then it'll be over. No, I, it, yeah, the whole, so it's um, but it's still, it's it's done really well, and people are enjoying it, which has been great. Maybe it was just what people needed during the pandemic. Now, Bevan. Tell people what your website is, because I just fell in love with it when I went to start doing some research for the show. Oh, well, it, it, it's uh, bevinclare.com. So that's B-E-V-I-N-C-L-A-R-E. There's no I in Claire. And, uh, and I have a whole bunch of different things going on there. Some travel-related things, some spice-related things, um, clinical herbalism-related things. So it's... Uh, a little bit of a mishmash and i'm also all on all of it is very media. appealing <laughs> thank you you're welcome okay so you're not only a provider and an educator and an author you're also an activist and you're involved in something called united plant savers 
Yeah, you know, I feel like activism comes in, in some ways, I feel like I almost partner and with a lot of people who are fabulous activists in whether it's bringing clinical herbal medicine to the underserved or whatever it is. But, um, but United Plant Savers is a group that helps to protect and create educational resources around at-risk medicinal plants. And this came, and we started a long, long time ago, um, 30 years ago or so, where it, there was just such popularity with medicinal plants. A lot of them were basically getting wiped out and to create mm. more awareness around how we need to um, to cultivate these things. I mean, this is not a new problem. We've been wiping out herbalism, herbal medicines for a long time. Uh, and, and so, but we need, you know, now we have a whole supply chain and so there can be some corporate responsibility and so on. So United Plant Savers, you know, especially with our Eastern Woodland plants, I mean, the area that we are all in, I'm, I'm assuming we're all in the mid-Atlantic, is just rich with the medicinal plants that the world wants, golden seal and ginseng and mm-hmm. cohosh. And I mean, this is their native environment. And, you know, with with all of the pressures on not native ecosystems, you know, we, we need to make sure consumers are aware that a lot of things that they're using, you know, you need to make sure you're getting them from ethical sources. And so that it's about creating awareness around that. Now, I think people are used to hearing about an endangered animal. Mm-hmm. Um, but so tell us what's happening out there. Is it because of urban sprawls or, or excuse me, suburban sprawl or how are these um, plants disappearing? Yeah, it can be, you know, suburban, it can be habitat destruction, it can be climate change and change of ecosystems. Mm -hmm. It can also be over-harvesting. A great example to make your listeners aware of is the popularity of ramps. Have you seen ramps like in cuisine or in the Mm -hmm. grocery store? Mm -hmm. So, you know, these little these little plants, which are, you know, they're tasty. They're not that much tastier than garlic or onions, to be honest. But those little bulbs, they won't flower or reproduce until they are eight or 10 years old. And wow. they, right. And, and what happens, you can eat the green part and the ramp is fine, but that's not what happens. You can go through a hillside and you can absolutely kill and pick up every ramp plant. Um, just It's like harvesting a little onion. You just pull it right out of the soil, bring it over to Wegmans and sell it, and they are gone. I mean, they will not come back from that from that hillside mm-hmm. where they were. Uh, and so I think a lot of, you know, eco-friendly natural food types are like, ooh, ramps. This is like a wild food. This is so cool. I want to eat that. And it, and they don't, you know, nobody's thinking, is this actually sustainable? Like where, where are these coming from? And it's the root. So, you know, if it's the leaf, I love the idea of people eating wild foods that come from plants that you have to make sure the plant keeps staying alive when mm-hmm. you're harvesting it, because that would actually ensure survival of a species. Um, but there's a lot of that out there. Golden seal is one of the ones. Golden seal is actually CITES listed on the endangered species, threatened and endangered species list. But um, but that doesn't really infect our uh, domestic commerce. It's more international. And so that is, um, that you know, that that's, a, again, another problem because golden seal, it's a great medicinal, but it's one of its top uses is still for people trying to thwart drug tests, which it doesn't even work for, <laughs> but it's sold <laughs> like crazy for this. And here's this beautiful plant that's yeah. threatened that's being used carelessly. 
Well, we will definitely make sure to have um, some links in the show notes for people who are interested in learning more about this and possibly getting um, involved in helping to preserve these plants because... It, just the same way, if you live in, if you live along the shore, you know to throw the pregnant um, blue crab back yeah. in the water. Yeah, yeah. We we, we can't over harvest these plants. Yeah, yeah. And United Plant Savers is a small grassroots organization. I mean, you know, people's memberships really do help support it. It's uh, it it. In there's botanical sanctuaries all over the country. So if listeners have, you know, woodlands or gardens where they like to grow native medicinals, you can actually become a botanical sanctuary, which is really fun. It's not oh, like a legally cool. defining thing. Yeah. yeah, but it's about kind of saying like this is a safe place for medicinal plants, and uh, you know, that's that's the intention. Well, um, I, I wish we could uh, keep running this forever. <laughs> we, <laughs> we have so many questions for you. No, no, this is great. Um, I Janet knows what's coming, but I, 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 I was not planning on doing this, but I, I just can't get you off of the hook here. So, you know, we're, we're very fond of uh, uh, medical cannabis in, in, in this establishment. And, and uh, you know, it, I, I don't really see this as uh, anything different but yet another plant but unfortunately the whole field got hyped up and kind of took a life of its own but just how do you see um you know the 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 cannabis and just just let's say the whole plant you know whether it's a hemp or cannabis it doesn't really matter how does it you in your opinion fits in the kind of a global plant medicine oh wow i mean it it's just it's such a complex thing right now, isn't it? Mm, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, I feel like we've just, I don't even know what it is. Like, is it a plant still? No, I mean, I, I know it is a plant, but, you know, I look at the, some of the the direction things have headed in, all the edibles and, um, and, and I don't know what to think. I don't know if I'm like, woohoo, look at this plant. It's like doing amazing things. Um, it's changing the world. It's like from all different directions. Or if I'm like, what have we done? I mean, humans are so good at taking this beautiful things that are already amazing and intact, sometimes doing awesome things with it. And sometimes just, you know, kind of bastardizing it to the point where <laughs> you don't even know, like, what, what is this? Um, but um, but I think it's you know yeah I don't I can't think of a more complicated plant unless we start getting into some of the opiates which aren't really plants anymore maybe cannabis could be similar in in those lines where um that where we've taken it so far away from from its natural form but I know that you know I know that a lot of you use this plant in forms that actually are um, respectful and aligned with the the actual idea that this is a living plant. And um, yeah, it's, a, you know, I think the interesting thing for herbalists is that, the, especially those of us who've been in the field for a while, is that back in the day, when you say, oh, I'm an herbalist, people would, you know, make the motion of smoking a joint and be like, yeah, man, or something like that. <laughs> and just, you know, really? you always look, yeah, and, and yeah. So, so you really had to like disassociate yourself from that and be like, ah, uh, no, no, that's not, you know, that's not, our thing so when it became a thing it was it, it it was like some herbalists really got into it and kept up with the learning curve i'm probably one of the ones that was like that just stood back and went wow i'm glad some people are 
really keeping up with this field and the potential. Um, and I, I would need another lifetime, I think, to really get there. But as you said, I just hope we don't forget that this is like a plant that's, you know, yeah, yeah, the, real. The, the, the problem is that, you know, the plant is still a scheduled substance. And I think that that mm-hmm. causes this whole mess of the system go into direction of what you described, but should be a, it's a weed for God's sake, right? right. So it right. should be one of the easiest things to grow and use in a day-to-day armamentarium for all kinds of things in life. But anyway, um, I'm kind of saddened that we have to wrap up soon. So, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but, you know, let's end on a kind of a bright note of, uh, can you give our listeners a couple of clinical pearls? Like, like sort of the things, you already gave us some, but maybe one or two more. Yeah, I um, I will give you some clinical pearls. I think, uh, you know, I, I, one of the things I hear from from providers a lot of the time is, oh, you know, we can't really use that because we don't have the evidence or the products aren't um, regulated enough. But but actually, we do have a lot of evidence on a lot of botanicals. I mean, you, you actually just have to look at for it. There's a lot of gold standard, you know, double blind, placebo controlled, randomized clinical trials on, on plants. Um, but even when there's not plants, you know, herbalism, herbs, for the most part, are more like foods. And I think, you know, providers often will recommend, you know, broccoli or something or fruits and veggies without really knowing how they work. I mean, if you, if, if someone's like, you should be eating more fruits and vegetables as a primary care provider. And you ask, well, how do those work? <laughs> They're like, ah, uh, you know, there's vitamins and minerals and fiber, but, but really, w- you know, when you look at something like broccoli, like that stuff is, there's a lot going on there. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, herbs are a lot like that. Like they are a spectrum. They start from you know things that are more gentle than broccoli and less and and less complex than broccoli and go all the way over to you know plants like coca and are you know things that where opium comes from where cocaine comes from where poisons come from and there's a spectrum and so a lot of our medicinal plants are very much on the food angle i mean a lot of them have no known toxicity and so it is okay to play with them i mean you don't have to thoroughly understand, especially, you know, so what I would say to to listeners is to learn how to use a few. I mean, especially our food-based plants that are generally regarded as safe by the um, by the FDA, things like cinnamon, things like turmeric, mm-hmm. um, things like garlic that that prevent a lot of uh, degenerative diseases that are incredibly therapeutically valuable um, and and don't, you know, disregard them because they are so mundane. I mean, you know, garlic's antimicrobial powers, when we look at things like um, tick-borne diseases, um, respiratory diseases, you know, it's just, it just makes so much sense. And yet, you know, people are like, oh, that's just garlic. Um, but I would put my money on garlic for preventing a lot of respiratory diseases because, you know, when you eat a lot of garlic, it's not your breath that smells like garlic. Like your respiratory cells are actually exuding garlic. I mean, you're, you know, you are, you know, this is for real. It's not, it's not about vampires um, or it is if you consider (laughs) vampires being infection, but they, you know, these things really are, um, they're really suited in a lot of very specific ways. And so, you know, play with herbalism, learn to learn how to use a few different plants um, and use herbalists, find herbalists as resources. If you go onto the American Herbalist Guild website, you can see um, registered herbalist members who have passed a peer certification 
um, registration process uh, that have biomedical literacy and understanding and are often really help, ha you know, happy to interface with primary care providers um, and patients alike. Is that broken down um, by state? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. There you go, folks. <laughs> Well, I think that is all the time we have for today. Thank you, Bevan, so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks, Thanks for, listening. for listening. <laughs>